Welcome to the Oncology Soundbite, a podcast produced by the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance designed to offer bite-sized, audible oncology education from one of the top cancer treatment centers in the nation. Medical professionals can tune in to learn from our nationally renowned team of experts representing Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, UW Medicine, and Seattle Children's. We hope you'll listen and learn while we share disease-specific advancements with the collective goal of improving cancer care and patient outcomes both regionally and beyond. I'm your host, Amy Martin, a senior physician liaison at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. During this episode, we will focus on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and the treatment options available for standard risk and high-risk patients. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce our subject matter expert joining us today, Dr. Maziar Shadman. He's an assistant professor at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and University of Washington, an attending physician at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and a member of the NCCN Guidelines Committee for CLL. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shadman. Thanks for having me, Amy. We're so glad to have you and wanted to start out by just asking you to explain your role here at within the organization and professional background a bit more. I'm a lymphoma and CLL physician. I take care of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia diagnosis and the focus of my research is also on CLL. I use uh, novel therapeutic agents for treatment of CLL. I also have a focus on high-risk CLL and I use cellular therapies, including CAR T-cell therapy and also stem cell transplant for selected patients who require more, more aggressive or more, more intensive uh, therapy for CLL. Fantastic. And just to dive right into our first question for today's podcast, what is considered high-risk CLL these days? I think that's a very important question. And before I, I give you a specific answer, we have to kind of go back a little bit and define the high risk in the setting of the treatment options that we had, let's say five, six, seven years ago, and compare it to what we have these days. So for example, if we go back to the era of what we call chemotherapy uh, or chemoimmunotherapy, when we used chemotherapeutic agents and we would combine them with what we call a monoclonal antibody like rituximab, for example, being the most commonly used one. In that era, we had some molecular markers in the CLL cells that would guide us and would help us uh, maybe predict which patients will have a better response to chemotherapy compared to others. And for example, we, we know that for the mutational status of the IGHV gene was very important in patients who, for example, had the mutation, their, their response to chemoimmunotherapy was much better compared to the ones who were considered to be unmutated. So that's just one example of having a, a biomarker that would mean something in the setting of chemoimmunotherapy. Now that we've moved to the novel agent era, we've learned uh, looking at different targeted therapies that maybe that, that marker is not as important as we, we uh, used it in the chemotherapy era. And that's just one example, and we're seeing more and more of these. I mean, some of the molecular markers looking at the fish and cytogenetics. Uh, for example, if a patient in the era of chemotherapy was receiving treatment and had an abnormality in the 11Q 
area of their chromosome. Again, their response to chemotherapy may have been shorter and their, uh, you know, they had a shorter time in remission. We're not seeing that with most of our novel agents. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that the high-risk disease is really defined in the setting of what's in the CNL cell in the, in the, at, the, at the genomic level, but also depends on what we are offering and what we're using for treatment. If I want to summarize in the current era, which we call a non-chemotherapy or novel agent era, I think most of us agree that non-chemotherapy options for all CLL patients these days. We can, we can discuss whether or not chemotherapy is still a viable option for selected CLL patients or patients with CLL. But I think, I think there are non-chemotherapy options for, for every CLL patient these days. So in that setting, there are still few markers that remain high risk. And namely, I can talk about the P53 gene abnormalities. I mean, these could be in form of deletion in that uh, the side of that uh, gene or a mutation. Basically, if you have a dysfunctional or aberrated P53 gene, we still see good responses to novel agents if you compare that to the response that those patients achieve from chemotherapy. But compared to patients who don't have these abnormalities, the, 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 even novel agents don't seem to be as effective as what uh, what we see in, in patients without P53 abnormalities. So deletion or mutation in P53 is a high-risk feature. The other, I think, and again, kind of talking about the current era is that we are learning that there are another group of patients who are considered high-risk based on their response to, to the novel agent. So if I have a patient, for example, who, let's say, uh, received a treatment with ibrutinib, which is one of the commonly used drugs. And after years of responding, we note that there is a evidence of disease progression. That patient, by definition, is considered high risk because now we're looking at a specific cohort of patients who, despite their initial response to our one of our best classes of drugs for CLL, they're now showing that their disease is becoming resistant or progressive on the ther therapy. And we treat those patients differently than what we would do for a patient who's, for example, for example, having disease progression after chemoimmunotherapy. So to summarize, I think there are disease-specific factors, and I would probably pick the P53 gene abnormalities. And then there are basically findings that we have after starting treatment, and that would be lack of response or progression on one of our novel agents, namely one of the brutin powers and kinase inhibitors like ibrutinib or, or acalabrutinib, or venetoclax. If a patient has evidence of disease progression on venetoclax, that patient is considered high risk and we would treat that patient differently. That's great to know. Thank you so much for that really thorough explanation. What would you say is, is the treatment for standard risk CLL? Yeah, we, we have been really fortunate to have access to so many really great drugs for, for CLL, starting from brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We now have both ibrutinib and acalabrutinib approved for CLL in all kinds of uh, all stages of disease in the front line, in the relapse refractory setting, and for patients with P53 abnormalities, as I said. We may have more coming. I mean, a very promising drug, xenobrutinib, 
is already approved for mantle cell lymphoma. It's another BTK inhibitor, and we are waiting to, for for studies that uh, may lead to the approval of xenobrutinib parcella. We do have venetoclax, a uh, BCL2 inhibitor, and a very effective agent for CLL with, with a unique, basically, quality of maybe making us able to provide chemotherapy-free and a time-limited therapy treatment for patients. As we know, for drugs like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, we have to continue the treatment until it doesn't work or until it causes toxicity. For venetoclax, we, we know that uh, there is a possibility of having a fixed duration treatment for one or two years, depending on the setting that you're using that drug, and in combination with monoclonal antibodies. And we also have another group of drugs, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors, idelolisib or duvelisib to be specific. So I would say these treatments are all very effective. We have to look at patient-specific factors. For example, if I have somebody with a standard risk CLL, meaning that they don't have a P53 deletion or mutation, and I'm starting treatment, I I think BTK inhibitors or venetoclax-based therapy in combination with obinutuzumab are both very reasonable. They're very different, though. So with ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, you're talking about an indefinite treatment until progression. So patients need to be aware that this treatment goes for, there's no there's no stopping uh, plan for those treatments versus venetoclax-based therapies are time-limited. There are side effects for each drug that should be considered. So I would say it's hard to come up with a single answer for that setting, but I can tell you my, my approach and most of my colleagues is to try to start patients on a chemotherapy-free and also time-limited treatment, meaning that patient can finish treatment in a year and hopefully enjoy a remission without taking a medication. So that's the goal. We do have clinical trials now that we're combining some of these novel agents together to, again, provide treatment for a fixed-duration treatment and then uh, ha having patients off treatment and without disease. So the short answer for, for standard risk patients, we have many options in the frontline setting. We have BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. In the relapse setting, we still have BTK inhibitors. We have venetoclax-based therapy in combination with rituximab. And then there we get PI3 kinase inhibitors also added to our list. The discussion has to happen between the physician and the patient looking at the specific side effects of each of these drugs and patients' medical comorbidities. Also, patients' uh, desire to have a time-limited therapy going on a treatment for one year, or there may be patients who really don't mind being on a kind of an ongoing treatment as long as there's no side effects. So for a standard risk, the goal is to minimize the time on treatment. The goal is to minimize the side effects. So we use next generation kinase inhibitors. We use drugs like acalabrutinib because we know it has fewer side effects when you compare it to ibrutinib, for example. Or uh, we, we try a time-limited therapy like venetoclax. So many options. Really the goal is to have shorter time on treatment and fewer side effects. Definitely. And that was incredible explanation behind the different options available for those standard risk 
patients? And, and what would you say is the treatment options for those high-risk CLL patients? Yeah, I think for high-risk CLL patients, things are a little bit different. So there, you're in a situation where you have to be a little bit more careful in picking your your first-line treatment. You have to look very closely at the evidence. And, you know, if you want to kind of walk through that journey from a time of diagnosis, for example, if I have a patient with deletion 17P or a mutated P53 gene and they, uh, they meet the criteria for treatment, uh, I think the best evidence is still with the protein tyrosine kinase inhibitor drug like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. Again, to put it in contrast with our standard risk patients there, as I mentioned, you have both BTK inhibitors and venetoclax, and you know the focus is really discussion with the patient and side effects and time on treatment. Here, uh, if you look at the the published data and you know realizing that there's no head-to-head comparison between these drugs, I think I think uh, there's a stronger uh, data in the in terms of the the long-term. Uh, efficacy of a drug like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib for, for the first-line treatment. So that would be usually the first-line option. And uh, then patients who uh, have disease progression or issues on those drugs can then move to a venetoclax-based therapy. Something that's very important to uh, remind ourselves here is that clinical trials play a major role for high-risk CLL patients. So we have made a lot of progress in treatment of CLL, in treating CLL patients. One area that we have uh, a lot of work to do is still the high-risk population, as I defined it earlier, either patients with high CLL, with, with 17P or P53 abnormalities, or patients who have uh, progression of one of the novel agents. So I would highly really encourage our colleagues or patients to to think about clinical trials. Uh, and sa- same approach for a standard risk patient. There, again, the focus is on less toxicity and shorter treatment. Here, we also, we're, we're not, we've not optimized our efficacy yet. So here for high-risk patients, that, that's, that's another need that we have to think about. Uh, so for high-risk patients, we also have another treatment modality, and that's the benefit of having cellular therapy, basically, for for patients with high-risk CLL. Uh, Historically, allogeneic stem cell transplant, and that's a type of, uh, our uh, our colleagues are aware, uh, that that's a type of treatment with a very long track record for, for treating CLL. And more recently, through clinical trials, we have access to uh, CAR T cell therapy for CLL. Uh, again, we know that CAR T is not currently approved for CLL. Uh, in some institutions, there's uh, access to CAR T uh, through clinical trials. And for example, for our patient here at SCCA, we uh, in our high-risk CLL program, we start uh, discussing uh, this treatment modality with our patients who have high-risk CLL. And, uh, through clinical trials, we have provided that treatment to, to many patients. Uh, that treatment, of course, uh, has to uh, be explained to the patient in terms of the toxicities and expected efficacy. Uh, 
but again, it has to be part of the conversation with the patient with high-risk CLL, especially after their disease um, becomes uh, resistant to one of the novel agents. Really, there is a need for a serious conversation about a treatment like CAR-T or even allogeneic transplant. A point that I wanted to make is that the time for referral to CAR-T therapy is not when a patient shows progression on both, let's say, ibrutinib and venetoclax. Uh, that may be too late for such a referral because it becomes very difficult to control patients' disease before while we're preparing CAR-T therapy. And also, we have to remember that there's a chance that CAR-T doesn't work, of course, and you want, you want to have a reliable treatment option to offer to your patient. So really, in my practice, and this is uh, very consistent uh, with some of the guidelines, is that when a high-risk CLL patient shows evidence of progression on either ibrutinib or acalabrutinib or venetoclax, and even if they're still responding to the next treatment, that's the time to start thinking about a more definitive treatment, in this case being cellular therapy like CAR-T. Again, CAR-T, there, there's an access issue. It has to be on a clinical trial. So if the clinical trial is not available, then the discussion would be allogeneic transplant. And of course, it's beyond this uh, uh, conversation here, but the risk-benefit ratio between the CAR-T and allogeneic transplant are very different. The one uh, last point that I wanted to make for high-risk CLL is that in CLL, we don't treat patients until they need it, meaning that, as we know, there is a standard criteria that we follow, and if patients meet that criteria, we offer treatment. The reason we don't offer treatment at the time of diagnosis is, of course, because of the fact that we have used chemotherapy in the past in early diagnosis, and we haven't seen a benefit from earlier intervention. The question is, what about the new drugs? What if you start somebody on, for example, ibrutinib at the time of diagnosis if you believe they have high-risk disease? Or venetoclax, for example. So the study that used ibrutinib in, uh, earlier in the course of diagnosis has not yet shown an overall survival benefit for patients. And that study is, uh, the initial report is out and was presented. And at this point, we don't believe that using ibrutinib in patients with high-risk CLL uh, before they meet the indication for treatment is beneficial. So we don't do that. For venetoclax, the question is still unanswered. And it's important to note that there will be a national study uh, by Southwest Oncology Group that will try to answer that question. and. Uh, the simple version of it is that patients who have high-risk disease, which includes patients with 17P deletion or P53 mutation, they can potentially start treatment with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, and then we will need to follow those patients and learn, learn more about their outcomes. Uh, again, to summarize, for high-risk patients, clinical trials, clinical trials, clinical trials. Patients have to be very smart about the way they, they pick their treatment. There, it's important to pay special attention to this treatment sequence and uh, think about uh, getting second opinion from centers that have access to cellular therapies like CAR-T therapy and allogeneic transplant early in the course of disease. Uh, it doesn't hurt to get the information and have that in initial conversation because 
when we are in a situation where treatments are all failing, it may not be the right time for, for having those long and complicated conversations with the patient. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shadman, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to the Oncology Soundbite. For more information about today's topic and other relevant healthcare provider news from SCCA, please visit our provider blog page, www.seattlecca.org slash provider dash blog, and subscribe to our e-newsletter for access to future episodes and clinical updates. You can also find the Oncology Soundbite in your favorite podcast app. Plus, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening and take good care.